Our subject this morning, the light of the world, from John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. Now, as we continue our series in the Gospel of John, let's recall that chapters 7 and 8, the background of both of these chapters is the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was at at a festival such like this one that Jesus, as a 12-year-old, he got lost amongst the crowds that filled Jerusalem and eventually they found him in the temple with the teachers of the law. Jews, no matter where they were, they were always encouraged, they made it a priority as part of their faith to, to go to these festivals whether they were from Judea, from Galilee or from the dispersion, they would come to one of the three festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost and the Passover. They had important reminders that were teaching tools about the things that God had done in the past. Now, remembering the past is an important aspect of our faith, isn't it? And Duncan just reminded us of that as we took part in communion. But it is not just that, because you cannot live in the past. There's a saying, uh, it goes, the past is a great place to visit, but you don't want to live there. God also calls us to live in the present and face up to the challenges of the time. There are so many challenges. We live in challenging days. So because of that, we reminisce. We suddenly, the past, for all the struggles that we faced in the past, it wasn't so bad. But the present, yeah, it's nothing like this. This is really difficult. Well, God calls us to be faithful in the present time. Our God is not just a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And that is what Jesus is trying to get his accusers to understand as they keep on challenging his authority. They're always thinking about the past, but the past was all about him. Everything was pointing to him and they could not see it. And the things that Jesus claims about his identity in this chapter are those which will cause men to have their own crisis of identity. He will draw some men to faith, which is the last verse that we read this morning in verse 30, and he will drive others away, verse 59. That's Jesus causes a crisis in people. You will either believe in him or you will reject him and run further away. So let's look at the the verse which will open up the theme for us this morning, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The feast has just ended. And in the temple courts, as part of the feast, they they would light up these four big candles. And as those candles and as the lights were starting to go off to mark the end of the 
the feast, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. That is one of the ways to get people's attention, isn't it? This is one of the great I am declarations from Jesus. There are seven in the Gospel of John. And just as the reference, there was a reference to water in chapter 7, and that reference to water pointed us back to the wilderness episode when the people were thirsty and they ran out of water. There was a water that gave them life. So light takes us to the pillar, the pillar of fire in the wilderness. That's the reference that Jesus is pointing us to here. In the Exodus 13, 21, it says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The image of light is a very powerful picture of God. Light cannot be contained. Light has no shape or form. You can't hold it in your hand. You cannot close it up in a box. Even though we have studied it and measured it, we actually don't, can't explain what it is. Yet we are fully aware of our need of it. We are, are drawn to light like, like moths to a flickering flame. We are drawn to a fireplace on a cold evening or a street lamp in a dark night. Duncan, if you come to Duncan and ask nicely, he will tell you what it was like when he was a child in Scotland during the raids of the Luftwaffe, the Germans. He will tell you that uh, the instructions were to turn off every flickering light. Everything. Everything. Everything had to be absolutely dark because the sirens had gone off and the planes were coming across the channel to drop their bombs. Any light would be a signal that this is where the town was and so get ready for the rain of bombs. Therefore everything had to be dark because light would draw the enemy. When Jesus declared in no uncertain terms, I am the light of the world, he also drew the ire of the enemy, didn't he? And that we're going to go after him. The words that he said were unmistakable to any good Jewish person. They knew what he was saying. In Psalm 27 verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And one more, Isaiah 9.2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Apart from its, its physical properties, light also represents hope, life. 
guidance, knowledge. That is why it is attached to God himself. Jesus comes and he says, well, what he doesn't say is, I can see the light or I know the way to the light or I can point you to the light. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I am the light of the world. Now having, it's a big claim, isn't it? Having grown up in a small little town of Nazareth, he could have said, I am the light of my village. Whoopee! Everybody claps. Or he could have said, I am the light of the Jews. He could claim. But no, he goes all out. He says, the world. I am the light of the world. Who can make such a claim? Well, the one who created light in the first place. The one who created physical light can get away with that statement because it's true. Because it's true. Every bit of it is true. That is why right throughout the Bible there is this ongoing interplay between light and darkness. In the physical realm, darkness is the normal state of things. You just go beyond our solar system and everything is dark, apart from the stars that shine every here and there, but darkness is the normal state of things. If it wasn't for the sun, everything would be dark. That is, we measure the speed of light, but no one has gone out there and measured the speed of dark. Can't do it. That is why light and darkness is is used to explain this never-ending struggle between sin and lostness and despair, evil and all that that entails on the one hand and then love, forgiveness and mercy and hope and salvation on the other. That is why even in the Westerns, the bad dude wears black and the hero, Clint Eastwood, he wears white. That's right, white hat. So that's how you can tell. Black dude. No, he's, he's got the black suit. He's, he's a bad fellow. Not skinned, by the way, so please, I'm not... He's wearing a black suit so we know he's bad. And Jesus comes and says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. What he's saying is that in this world of darkness we will have a light to guide us through. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
we are going somewhere. We are not surrounded by despair. And Jesus is unequivocally saying that apart from himself, the human condition is in abject darkness. In the, in the story last week, there was the, the woman caught in adultery, the well-known story. But Jesus points them, the accusers, points them to the blindness of their own hearts, to the darkness within their own hearts. He who is without sin. And the next story in John, in chapter 9, is about an actual blind man who is going to be healed. And again, Jesus will point, will use him as a lesson on spiritual blindness. Do you see the connection? It's a, it's a recurring theme in John's Gospel. Jesus has come to dispel the darkness. But perhaps, more importantly, Jesus is speaking of darkness that lies deep in the human heart. Because what we tend to do is what the Jews who brought this woman, they tend to do as, and we, we focus on sin as in moral acts. What people do is sinful. But sin is much wider than immorality and therefore harder to spot, harder to define and to deal with because sin is at the very core of who we are and what we think, not just what we do. What we do is a display of the sin in the heart. Interesting discussion that you probably had already. I have. And it goes something like this. Such and such a person is a good person. They're in heaven. They've never done a bad thing in their life. So what we're doing is equating sinfulness with deeds. Whether they be... I've had this long argument with my relatives online, it's always fun, trying to explain to them that salvation is by grace, that sin is, is in our hearts, that it's, there's a lot of, according to your definition, there's actually a lot of good people in hell and that's actually, by grace, there's actually a lot of bad people in heaven. The thief on the cross was a bad person. Bad person by anybody's standard. And Jesus yet promised him that he will be in paradise. And I hear some people say, well, I'm not going to give my life to Christ yet because I'm going to miss out on a lot of fun. I'll just wait till the end. You know, like a deathbed confession just at the last minute in extra time, Right? just before the buzzer goes, before the flat line, you know, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Really? Yeah? You, 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 okay, you're sure about that? Okay? No. Because what happens is people become more and more set in their ways. Their hearts become hardened. Harder to mould. That's why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. 
hear the gospel respond today, today. It's not tomorrow, tomorrow is not guaranteed, but you are given today. Verses 13 to 18, we look at the first. I'm going to call this the confidence that Jesus had. No one was as confident a human being like Jesus. And he wants us as his children to share some of this confidence that he had. I want some of that. And, And here it is, confidence in himself, verses 13 to 18. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Jesus was someone who, no matter what the situation, he exuded confidence like no other. When we come across someone like that, we might say, we know he knows where he's been, he knows where he's going, He knows what he wants out of life, that type of uh, exclamation. The Pharisees raise what is usually a very valid point when it comes to when they come and say to him, you are testifying about yourself, but your testimony is not true. The point that they're trying to make is is, is 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 a procedural matter that Jesus is making claims on his own behalf or he's blowing his own trumpet. It is just your word against somebody else, so you've got no witnesses to back up what you're saying. It's what they're, what they're saying. So this was a, a Jewish legal principle that, that went back to the Old Testament. A person is not accredited unto, unto himself. In other words, they, they were saying, your word alone is insufficient. But they were using the wrong standard. You see, these Jewish leaders, they spoke with great authority about things they never experienced. I can go online and look at thousands of photos about the Northern Lights. I can, and, and I can write essays and everything else about the Northern Lights. I can tell you what causes it and what happens, the magnetic and all of this and where it happens, what time of year. and all. I can give you all the details about that and what it looks like and show you photos of it. But if I never experienced that, I'm just giving you a theoretical understanding of what the Northern Lights are like. But now I think I can speak with a little bit more authority, not total, because at least I saw it once for about 20 minutes. So now I'm the authority on Northern Lights. No, okay. But at least I experienced it a little bit. A little bit. These people, these leaders, they were speaking with great authority on something which they never experienced. Only Jesus and the Father can testify about heavenly things because they have first-hand knowledge of them. Who else is qualified as a witness if not our Lord? Jesus is the only person that had come down from heaven. 
He was the only one who could give evidence about heaven. He's saying, I'm an expert witness about heaven. I'm an expert witness about God. I'm an expert witness about the Father because that's my home. I can tell you what it's like. I can give you the details. And as much as I can try and tell you and describe it, you will not believe what I'm telling you. In fact, words cannot describe it. It's breathtaking. Henry Augustus Rowland was a professor of physics at John Hopkins uh, University. He was once called as an expert witness at a trial. And during cross-examination, a lawyer demanded, what are your qualifications as an expert witness in this case? And this professor was normally quite humble, you know, modest, retiring, and he replied very quietly. He said, I am the greatest living expert on the subject under discussion. And later, uh, a friend who was well acquainted to with Roland's disposition, expressed surprise at how, yeah, at the professor's uncharacteristic answer. And Roland answered, you know, well, what did you expect me to do? I was under oath. I had to tell him the truth. He was the greatest expert under the subject under discussion. Yeah, you want me to lie? When Jesus makes the claims that he did, he is not bragging. It is because of his character that he has to make truthful declarations. From the lips of mere mortals, these words would appear arrogant in the extreme, but not from Jesus. In fact, anything less would be considered dishonest. What do you want me to tell you? Anything less will be dishonest. I'm not going to tone it down. I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to make it politically correct. And just as heaven is absolutely, unbelievably fantastic and beyond description, he actually spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. If you don't believe me, read your Bibles. Any attempt to water it down, as we are actually trying to do today, is being dishonest. Jesus never did. What's more, God the Father was the second witness to confirm the truth concerning Jesus. Remember the voice of the Father at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son. That was a confirmation. That was a witness. There had been the miracles that thousands had seen Jesus perform. They pointed to him. The Father would give further evidence when the Son of Man is is lifted up. And then when he is raised from the dead, there would be evidence for all to see. Jesus, the confidence in Jesus 
There is confidence in his lineage. There were many words that I could use, but this, I think, theologically fits the best, even though it's not perfect. Confidence in his lineage, verses 19 to 20. When they asked him, where is your father? You do not know my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Right throughout these two chapters, they just keep coming at Jesus. They keep coming. They just can't stop. And so they ask what appears to be a very ugly question. By the way, where is your father? I believe this question is believed to, it's a bit of a punch below the belt. One that his adversaries hoped that would silence Jesus finally. And probably even mock him and laugh at Jesus' expense. If they think that Jesus is talking about Joseph as his father, if they know that Joseph had been dead, we can surmise that, we can assume that, that he, Joseph had been dead for a while now, how then can Jesus speak of his father, Joseph in this case, when he's dead? Is Jesus communicating with the dead? Is that what's happening here? Or worse, they are accusing Jesus of being an illegitimate child as they do again later in the in the in you know in this chapter later on in verse 41 they're going to say we were born as a result of we were not born as a result of immorality we have only one father god himself what they're saying is hang on your do you know who your father is the cutting words intended to embarrass jesus for accusing him of, of, of being this illegitimate child of Mary and some unknown lover outside of wedlock. Later, of course, they will press him on this point, reminding him and others that he has no right to speak about having a father. Obviously, Jesus is not taken back by this challenge because Jesus knows the truth. Some of you have had good fathers. I have. It's quite a privilege. Never take your fathers for granted. They're not going to be around forever. Some of you have had bad fathers. And still others, maybe even here this morning, don't actually know who their father is. And that's sad. And maybe you can relate a little bit to some of the accusations that they're throwing at Jesus. Maybe this is some of the stuff that you've had to put up with when you were starting up at school. Some type of... There are many words that are out there, but basically calling you an illegitimate child. But I'm here also to remind you that through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit that we do have a Father in Heaven. He's, in fact, His personal name called Abba, Father. He is our Heavenly Daddy. It's not taking any respect from who He is, but it's a very personal, it's a very loving, tender name that 
we're able to use through the Holy Spirit, we're actually able to call in prayer, we're actually come, able to come to, to our Father in Heaven and call Him our Daddy. Nothing in the world can replace that. Nothing. More about confidence. Confident in his character, verses 21 to 24. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin and where I go you cannot come. And this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Now, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that if they do not respond positively to his claim in the here and now, they will be forever separated from him in the hereafter. Previously, in, in, in chapter 7, he told them that he was going away and that when he said he was going away, what, where is he going? Is he going to the to the dispersion? Is he going to the lost tribes? Is that where he's going? Now they're a little bit more serious, but at the same time a little bit closer to what is actually going to happen to Jesus. But they are questioning, what they're doing is they're questioning his mental health by wondering if he's going to kill himself. For the Jews, just to let you know, to commit suicide was to be eternally damned, automatic. Obviously, when Jesus speaks of going away, he's speaking about his departure, his departure going back to the Father. His mission is coming to an end. These are the last six months of his earthly life. He will shortly be returning to the one who sent him, mission accomplished. And they will seek him when he is gone. Why would they be seeking Jesus once he has gone away? I thought they'd be happy to see him gone. They were the ones who put him on the cross in the first place. But this seeking after Jesus does not refer to what the Pharisees would do immediately after his earthly departure, but rather what they would do later at the end, at the end time, at the, end, at the time of their deepest need. So seeking him and then dying in their sins, they are connected. They are dying in their sins. To die in your sins is supreme, extreme disaster. It does not get worse than that. Again, discussion online. A lot of people out there, the Catholic faith, still believe, because this is still Catholic teaching, that there is a place called purgatory. That you're neither in heaven, you're neither in hell. If you really haven't, that you're going to have a chance in purgatory. This is an in-between place. And so if they come and offer prayers and offer masses and all this stuff under your name, then Auntie Dottie can move from purgatory, finally move to heaven. It's nowhere in the scriptures. This is made up stuff. It's not true. It's one way to, if they come up with a concept of purgatory because they cannot simply face the fact that there's only two places you can go to, heaven or hell. 
and yet people continue to believe this lie. It is a lie. One of the things that I'm periodically called upon to do as a pastor is to conduct funerals. I was going to do one yesterday, but then somebody else took it, so that's okay. But in each funeral that I conduct will invariably impact me emotionally. You cannot simply do this and not be emotionally attached in one way or another because I want to find out about the person, how they lived, what they believed. I will either be filled with a sense of joy knowing that the deceased person, by what they believed and by the way they lived their lives, they have gone to be with Jesus. Or I will be filled with a sense of sorrow. My words will be measured. I don't want to make any false promises, knowing that the deceased person, by the way, by what they believed or didn't believe, and by the way they lived their lives, has not gone to be with Jesus. What will be the determining factor between one or the other? Totally depends on whether they have established a relationship with Jesus while they were living. If they sought a relationship with him while living, then they are promised the joys of heaven. And it is impossible to establish a relationship with him after death. There are no second chances. It's like the ark, the uh, Noah's ark. Once the doors are closed, you've had a hundred years of preaching, all of those people. But once the doors are closed, that's it. There's no chance. So Jesus is confident in his character and Jesus is confident in his relationship with the Father, verses 25 to 30. Who are you? they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy in what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand what he was telling them about his Father. If people don't want to believe you, they simply won't believe you. Here they are, they keep asking Jesus about his identity. It's, it's, it's in these two chapters, they keep coming at him, who are you? And Jesus in essence responds, I have already told you. I've answered your question many times. 2,000 years later, the world continues to ask the same question, who is Jesus? Not because an answer has not been given, but because they find the answer unacceptable. They therefore seek an alternative answer. What are the opinions out there? And one that Satan is only too willing to provide? He has provided many alternative answers to the truth. And uh, next week we'll look at the fact that he is the father of lies and he's really good, that's his nature, Jesus told us. And one such answer that Satan has come up with is evolution. 
for it provided a somewhat plausible explanation for people who were already waiting, they were already predisposed, their condition of their heart were moving towards unbelief. So suddenly Charles Darwin puts a few things together and comes up with a theory of evolution to serve all the people who are already predisposed to not believing in God in the first place. It was a theory. It is a theory. And now it is being taught like truth? Really? It is no accident that the Bible describes Satan as an angel of light. He endeavours to give us new light, to cause us to look at things in a different light, from another perspective. But his light is not the light of the Gospel, or God's Word. So when he tempted Eve, he, he deceived her into believing that God was not good. Is God really good? Is that right? And that his one command was not really for man's good, that God was holding out on Adam and Eve. And he convinced Eve that God's warning was a lie and that disobedience was a way to open their minds. Open your mind. Look. And still seeking to enlighten men today. But this enlightenment is not from the Father of Lights, it's from the Father of Darkness. In fact, it is not light at all. More than that, he seeks to extinguish anyone who lives by the true light. There are many pulpits, just like this one, there are many pulpits today who are preaching another gospel, which is not the true gospel that brings salvation. And people flock to them. And the Bible warns us about another gospel, that even if an angel from heaven should come and give you another gospel, don't believe it. And yet look at the flocks right out there. Final thoughts. We started with the words... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He doesn't say we will stare at the light of life, but we will have the light of life. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says to us, you are the light of the world. Hang on, I thought you were the light of the world and now we are the light of the world? What's going on? Because he's given us the responsibility to be light in this dark world. No, we are not the light. Ours is more of a reflected light, a bit like the moon. We shine only as we allow him to shine through us. But if there is light in this world, it is not 
within us naturally, nor does it shine as a result of some philosophy or some new belief system. But it comes as a result of Jesus living his life through you, through me. That is the only way that we can have the light of life. Let me leave you with one of my favourite verses which, with which we started our time here this morning. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. It takes us all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? The original light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts To do what? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's bringing everything together, isn't it? It's marvellous what God has done. And as the old song used to say, let your light shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Amen. My God bless us.